0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is the final episode in our series on John McDouall Stewart, who led six expeditions into the Australian interior in the late 1850s and early 1860s, aiming to cross the continent and blaze a route for the telegraph line. Last time, we concluded Stuart's fifth expedition, where he had reached Newcastle Waters, but had come up several hundred miles short of the north coast. His expedition had been thwarted by a lack of water in the thorny, scrubby plain of the area, which was described as nature's attempt at making barbed wire. Stuart had returned to Adelaide, as the nation mourned the tragedy surrounding the Victorian Exploring Expedition. Seven men had died, including its commander, Robert O'Hara Burke. This had tempered people's enthusiasm for exploration, but not enough to stop the government of South Australia, which was still offering a 2,000-pound prize to the man who could map out a telegraph route from Adelaide to the North Coast. John McDougall Stewart was keen to take up the challenge once again. He had come so close on his last expedition, and just as important, he knew he couldn't do this sort of thing much longer. Stewart was 46 years old, but two-plus decades in the outback had compromised his health, his eyes were permanently damaged, and while scurvy heals, it takes a toll on the body and mind, and every year it got harder and harder for Stuart to get back into the saddle. The government would eventually put up 2,000 pounds for a new expedition, with James Chambers and William Fink providing 70 horses. The expedition was officially called the Great Northern Exploring Expedition. The government, by the way, insisted Stuart take with him a naturalist to document the plants and animals along the route. Stewart wanted nothing to do with this, but if it got him a new expedition, he was fine with bringing a scientist along for the ride. Stewart's final expedition was launched from the home of James Chambers in Adelaide on October 23, 1861. And while I usually don't talk about these early parts of an expedition, something will happen just north of Adelaide that will greatly affect our story. The expedition stopped at one point because some of the horses were being troublesome. While working with the animals, one of them would rear up and kick Stuart in the temple, knocking him unconscious. The horse then trampled Stuart's right hand, dislocating two joints and tearing the flesh and nail from one finger. The hand was so badly mangled, amputation was discussed. Stuart was thus forced to recover for more than a month while the rest of the expedition continued north. It was during this recovery period that the fates of Burke and Wills reached Stuart. His Victorian rival was dead, as many had feared. And while Burke had crossed the continent, the entire thing was seen as a disaster. As a note, Stuart knew he still had a chance to claim the 2,000-pound prize for crossing the continent. This had not been claimed by Burke's team. The prize required the route to be further west than Burke's route, and to Adelaide. So for Stuart, this upcoming expedition was a way to come away with a small fortune. But there was a problem, as Stuart's hand never healed. It was essentially worthless, and it would affect him going forward. In reality, a man with such a disability was a liability for an expedition going into the Australian interior. Stewart should have left the exploring to others, but we know that's not going to happen. Crossing the continent was Stewart's white whale. A broken right hand was not going to stop him, and thus by the beginning of December, he had caught up with the rest of the expedition at Malulu Station, just east of Lake Torrens. There, the expedition would spend December and early January preparing for their departure. Let's look at the expedition's makeup. Stuart was, of course, leading everything. Next was William Keckwick and Francis Thring, both returning to their roles as second and third in command. These men were exceptional members of the expedition, their presence even more essential than on earlier journeys, as Stuart was breaking down. In addition to Keckwick and Thring, there was a surveyor and artist, Stephen King Jr., plus a naturalist, Frederick Waterhouse. There was also a blacksmith to keep the horses shod, and five other men, although one of this latter group would get dismissed shortly after the journey began, for insubordination. A man not following orders was verboten on a Stewart expedition. Outside of Stewart, Keckwick and Waterhouse, the team members were all young men in their early 20s. In the end, it was 10 men and 71 horses. One thing I want to mention was that none of the men were allowed to keep a personal diary or make any drawings. However, King, the surveyor, would make some sketches in secret, the only depictions of Stuart's travels that we have from a person actually on one of his expeditions. The reason for this was that Stuart didn't want any sort of information leaking out to other people or entities that might try and exploit the information he was acquiring. This had happened on his first expedition, when others had rushed out to Chambers Creek and made claims to lands he felt he was entitled to. The Great Northern Exploring Expedition... Departed Chambers Creek on January 8, 1862, loaded with supplies to last the expedition for more than half a year. From the get go, Stewart pushed his team hard, covering 30 to 50 kilometers a day, or 20 to 30 miles. This area was familiar ground for Stewart, and he knew the best places to find water, even in the summer months. A hard pace and excessive heat took their toll on the horses, and some were suffering from worms, an intestinal parasite. In the first couple of months, Stewart lost eight of them. A few died, but most just became knocked up, as Stuart liked to say in his journals and couldn't continue. For these animals, Stuart would leave them at a location with permanent water and feed. A few would even be collected on the return journey. On February 17th, Francis Thring, while out collecting the horses, came upon three aboriginal men concealed in some bushes. Stuart speculated that they were going to attack Thring, but it may have been that they were just observing the white men from cover. No matter the answer, the two parties surprised one another, and one of the Aboriginal men threw a boomerang at Thring and his horse, which missed. Thring responded by firing his revolver and driving off the men. It was not known if anyone was injured or killed in the encounter. The Aboriginal people would keep tabs on the expedition as it moved north, sometimes starting grass fires to spook the men and horses. One time Stuart reported several Aboriginal people appeared on top of a hill and yelled at the expedition while holding up shields and spears in an aggressive manner. Stuart ordered one of his men, William Ald, to fire a couple of warning shots at them. This drove them off. This sort of thing happened several times, Stuart and his men firing off their rifles as warnings. Thus, any direct confrontations were avoided, but the atmosphere was tense. The expedition reached Attack Creek on March 28th, and a week later they arrived at Newcastle Waters. After that, it was the scrubby, thorny landscape of the Sturt Plain. This was the region that had torn up the men's saddles and clothing the previous year. Stewart had never been able to penetrate it. The team rested a week at Newcastle Waters, recuperating from the hot and grueling journey. Stewart then sent excursions to the north in search of water, often led by Keckwick or Thring. Stewart spent more time at base camp than previous expeditions, due to his flagging health, but he still insisted on leading his share of scouting parties into the wilderness. But honestly, Stewart was feeling the weight of the years of hard living. Also, he was the first person to demonstrate signs of scurvy. He wrote, quote, I feel this heavy work much more than I did the journey of last year and feel my capability of endurance giving way, End quote. Over the next six weeks, the team would mount five major excursions towards the Northwest, aiming for the Victoria River. There was no luck. Stewart then led a group north in late May and discovered permanent water at a place he would name Daily Waters, about 150 kilometers or 95 miles from Newcastle Waters, the entire expedition was then brought up to this new location where the team could fish as well as hunt birds while they prepared for the next step in their journey. This demonstrated the slow stepping that Stuart had been doing all across the continent. The larger expedition size allowed him to send out smaller parties in search of water. When it was found, everyone moved up to the new base camp. It very much helped that the men and horses were not constantly on the move, as with the first four expeditions. And I want to point out that permanent water, meaning water that didn't dry up at some point during the year, was really important. And that's because Stuart was blazing a route for the telegraph. And to successfully do that, his route needed to have access to water because laying the telegraph line and maintaining it was going to involve lots of people, animals, supplies, gear, and provisions. For that, you would need water. Without it, a route was not feasible. Anyhow, from daily waters, the team pushed north, but was greeted not just with thick scrub, but boggy marshlands. Thus, in early June, Stewart made a stab at going northeast towards the Gulf of Carpentaria. It was even worse than his attempts to the northwest. It was a mass of swamps and scrub, the thick trees making the area, Stewart said, quote, one of the blackest and most dismal views a man ever beheld, quote. It was crazy terrain. Sometimes it was boggy and wet, other times the earth was hard as rock, with cracks and holes that threatened to break the ankles of any man or horse that dared to cross it. There was no way through. Stuart retreated to daily waters. But he was not about to give up. With his failing health on his mind, Stuart knew that this was his last chance to cross the continent. Thus, he tried again to get the northwest, aiming for the Victoria River. But no luck. And then the team made a move directly north, and on June 25th, 1862. They reached the Roper River, which had been discovered by Europeans back in 1845. They were now past the scrubby plain of thorns and needles and no water. Stewart and his team were now entering a region now covered in lush tropical forests, which run all the way to the north coast of Australia. These were the mangrove forests swamps that had thwarted Robert O'Hara Burke. Stewart and his team now had water, but that meant they now had to find their way through the tangled tropical landscape. Stewart could have tried to go east, towards the Gulf of Carpentaria, but he kept pushing north. Now, the swamps meant new dangers and hazards for Stuart and his men. Such an environment can be particularly dangerous to the horses. The horses were constantly getting stuck in the water, and at times, not getting out. Also, there were the Aboriginal people. Stuart saw signs of them everywhere, and he knew his team was being watched. In time, groups of the Aboriginal people appeared, mostly keeping a safe distance from the expedition in an effort to prove their friendship, Stewart and his men took to giving them fish hooks, something they valued. But Stewart always tried to keep the Aboriginal Australians at arm's length. He didn't want to have any misunderstandings that can happen when two very different cultures interact. That could lead to violence, and Stewart very much wanted to avoid that. Another minor issue that plagued Stewart and the team were the bugs and flies and mosquitoes. While not a serious threat to the party, they were wildly annoying. Now, there was one good thing about reaching this new region, and that was the food, and specifically vegetables. Stewart reported finding some wild cucumbers, and while not high in vitamin C, they have small amounts of it, which is helpful, and thus Stewart's scurvy eased some around this time. And so, for more than a month, Stewart and his team poked and of their way north through the wet and watery and often muddy and soft earth of what today is called Kakadu National Park. On July 9th, they reached territory that had been previously mapped by Europeans. Stuart knew he was getting close to the northern coast. The expedition went from the Roper River to the Adelaide River and then to the Mary River, picking their way steadily north through the forests, marshes, and valleys. Closer and closer they came to their destination. Stuart was anxious to reach the coast, always worried the team would be thwarted by some new obstacle. Even as he neared the north shore, he didn't admit how close he was to the team. He wanted to surprise his men, but also he didn't want to disappoint them if something happened to keep them from their goal. But on July 24, 1861, Stuart and Thring were leading the expedition through a valley, and Stuart could hear the sound of the ocean. He kept quiet, and then, as the two men emerged from the valley and onto a beach, he saw that he had made it. Stuart wrote, quote, "...was gratified and delighted to behold the water of the Indian Ocean in the Van Diemen Gulf, before the party with horses do anything of its proximity." Thring, who rode in advance of me, called out, The sea, the sea. The rest of the men heard the shouting and didn't react at first, not knowing what was going on. And then they came closer and they began to cheer. Stuart dismounted, removed his boots, and walked into the water, keeping a promise he had made to South Australia's governor, Richard MacDonnell. The men were giddy at their accomplishment. They rushed into the water to celebrate. They had ventured more than 2,000 miles, or 3,200 kilometers in one of the most grueling and challenging ventures in the history of the continent. The expedition had emerged at Van Diemen Gulf, just east of present-day Darwin. It had taken a month for the expedition to cover the final 185 miles to the ocean, or 300 kilometers. The next day, the team had a ceremony to commemorate their success. A flag, given to Stuart by Elizabeth Chambers, the eldest daughter of James Chambers, was hung from a tree at a place now called Point Stuart. The flag had Stuart's name embroidered on it he named the bay before him, Chambers Bay, in honor of Elizabeth. A container was left at the site of the ceremony, inside of it a piece of paper. It said, quote, South Australian Great Northern Exploring Expedition. The Exploring Party, under the command of John MacDool Stewart, arrived at this spot on the 25th day of July, 1862, having crossed the entire continent of Australia, from the southern to the Indian Ocean, passing through the center. They left the city of Adelaide on the 26th day of October, 1861, in the most northern station of the colony on the 21st day of January, 1862. To commemorate this happy event, they have raised this flag bearing his name. All well. God save the Queen. End quote. The paper was signed by Stuart and the other members of the company. The men asked Stuart if they could have an extra cup of tea to celebrate their accomplishment, but Stuart denied the request. And so John McDuel Stuart had done it. He had crossed the Australian continent, blazing a trail that he felt was a usable path for the telegraph. And unlike Robert O'Hara Burke, he had actually stood in the ocean. Not to denigrate what Burke had done, but those last miles were some of the toughest. Now the team had to get home, only there was one big problem with that. Remember that request by the men for an extra cup of tea to celebrate? Well, they were a bit miffed at Stewart's denial of the request, but later they understood why he had done it. Stewart had passed on the celebratory tea because he didn't want to waste any of the expedition's dwindling resources on himself, and the reason for that was he doubted if he would survive the return journey across Australia. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for through-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. John McDougall Stewart was not a well man. He hid his suffering as much as he could, but to everyone, it was clear he was not healthy. Scurvy was an issue for all the men, especially so for Stuart. He was weak and achy, but he had pushed forward, ignoring the issues as much as possible. Thankfully, his top lieutenants, Keckwick and Thring, filled in ably when Stewart needed to recuperate. Stewart's expedition would rest only one more night on the coast of Australia before beginning the return journey. Before leaving, Stewart had his initials cut into a tree near the beach. On his previous expeditions, Stuart moved quickly and relentlessly on his return marches. This would be no exception. The team was on partial rations already, and Stuart wanted to go as far as possible each day to shorten the trek as much as possible. At first, the move south went well. The team had water, and the Aboriginal people kept their distance from the expedition. Also, the men had adapted to their environment. Example, when they came to a boggy area they needed to cross, they cut down the tall grass and laid it in their path. This kept the horses from sinking into the muck. It was simple but effective. However, it wasn't long before Stuart's health issues became apparent to everyone. In early August, he developed a fever. Also, the horses were getting sick, likely from eating plants that didn't agree with them. Stewart knew he was going to have to leave some behind, something he loathed doing. By mid-August, several horses were too ill to continue, and one drowned after getting stuck in the swamp. I shall feel his loss very much, wrote Stuart. Because of the loss of the horses, the team had to get rid of non-essential gear. The less the horses had to carry, the better chance they had of surviving. And then on August 14th, Stuart had an attack while he was on his horse. He wrote, quote, I was seized with a violent pain under the right shoulder blade, which deprived me of breath and the power of utterance. It darted through my body like lightning, causing the most excruciating pain that I have ever felt in my life, end quote. Stewart was temporarily paralyzed and had to be lifted out of his saddle by his men. As he was laid down, he broke out into a cold sweat. He only got some relief from the pain after taking some laudanum, which is an opium-based painkiller. Of the seizure, he wrote, quote, "...such a day of torture I have never experienced before," end quote. Stewart would recover from the attack, at least enough to continue on the journey. However, due to his health issues and those of the horses, the team began to go slower, often only staying in the saddle for six or eight hours. The horses were really starting to suffer, many of them getting sick and weak. Stewart wrote, quote, I never saw horses fall away so rapidly before, end quote. And if that wasn't enough, there was another problem as well, water. By early August, it was already starting to dry up in places. The team was able to reach Newcastle Waters by the end of August, but Stewart's health continued to decline. He got weaker and weaker, scurvy sapping the life out of him. He wondered if he was going to survive the journey south. Also, his eyesight was so bad, he could barely see anything in the darkness. As a note, the other men in the expedition, most of whom were half of Stuart's age, were suffering from the effects of scurvy, but none as badly as Stewart. Water was now drying up at an alarming rate. The team passed multiple locations that had, had water several months earlier, but were now dry. At one waterhole, Stewart noted the team was lucky to reach it when they did, as it would be dry within a few days. The drying up of the land also meant that feed for the horses was lacking. Obviously, not getting enough food was bad for the horses, but this also increased the chance the horses would eat stuff that wasn't good for them, which we have already seen can end in disaster. By early September, Stewart was weak and feeble. He had to be lifted into his saddle and could barely walk. The team had to stop frequently because he couldn't stay in the saddle for long periods. Stuart's gums and mouth were so sore, he couldn't chew, and he was reduced to eating boiled flour. The expedition reached Attack Creek and continued south. By the end of the month, they were on half rations. It was at this time that one of the horses fell and was severely injured. It had to be put down. It was the first time Stuart had lost an animal to injury on any of his expeditions. The only positive to the death of the horse was that it gave the men some fresh meat. Regarding the aboriginal people, it was interesting to see them and Stuart's team Come to a tentative coexistence. With water getting scarce, both parties found themselves in competition for such resources. At first, the Aboriginal people were wary of Stewart and his men, but eventually both groups would share a water source. Example, one time Stewart and his team set up camp on one side of a creek, while the Aboriginal people set up on the other. I'm guessing the fact that Stewart and his team were not staying long was helpful. The Aboriginal people likely didn't begrudge the white men for using a water hole, so long as they moved on. Through all of this, Stuart's health continued to decline. In October, he wrote, quote, "...what a miserable life mine is now. I get no rest night or day from this terrible gnawing pain. The nights are too long and the days are too long, and I am so weak that I am hardly able to move about the camp." Stewart Stuart couldn't walk, and every day it was agony to sit in the saddle. And then on October 27th, the end seemed near for Stuart. He was seized by a violent fit and was throwing up blood. Everyone was sure he was near death. That night, Stuart had two of his men sit with him, in case he died. He wanted two men, by the way, because he felt it was a lonely thing for a man to be with a dying person. Despite all the signs, John McNeil Stewart survived the night. Getting on a horse was impossible, so a stretcher was made and tied between the two calmest horses. He would travel around 600 miles, or 1,000 kilometers, in this fashion. The expedition crossed the McDonnell Range, where they were greeted by a welcome friend, Rain. This boosted the spirits of the men and improved Stuart's health. On November 7th, the expedition reached the Fink River, and then on the 26th, they came to the northernmost ranch in the region, Jarvis Station. Stewart was still in bad shape, but improving. He could walk a few feet, although he couldn't ride. On December 9th, the expedition reached Chambers Creek, and then a few days later ran into John Chambers, the brother of James Chambers. Stewart was saddened to find out that James Chambers had died a few months earlier, due to complications from a bacterial infection. It was James who had been Stewart's most stalwart supporter and friend. The team went to Malulu Station, and then Stuart left the men and went on to Adelaide with John Chambers. The rest of the team joined Stuart the next month, and all ten of the men rode into the city on January 21, 1863, cheered as heroes. The men had been instructed to keep all their ragged clothing from the march and wear it for the procession. Thus, the ten weary men, still skeletal from their long journey, rode into the city on their equally weary-looking horses. Unbeknownst to Stuart and his team, on that very day in Melbourne, the colony of Victoria held a funeral for their fallen heroes, Robert O'Hara Burke and William Wills. 40,000 people turned out for the elaborate affair. And so that concludes the sixth and final expedition of John McDouall Stuart. The goal had been to cross the continent of Australia and establish a route to run a telegraph line between the northern coast and Adelaide. In that, Stuart had succeeded on all counts. And so, with Stewart's expeditions in the books, I want to talk about several things regarding our explorer. That includes taking a look at the aftermath of the expedition, including the big takeaways and ramifications of Stewart's expeditions. Also, we'll look at the rest of the life of John McDowell Stuart, plus the legacy of the man, including my own thoughts and observations. So, let's get started with the aftermath of Stewart's expedition. The first thing I should say is that Stewart had done exactly what he intended. He had crossed the continent and in the process identified a good route to run a telegraph line from the north coast to Adelaide. Within a year, the area that is now the Northern Territory was transferred from New South Wales to South Australia. And by 1870, a deal was struck to run a telegraph line from the island of Java to Darwin, which had only been founded a year earlier, on the northern coast of Australia. The line would then run from Darwin to Adelaide. It was a massive project and completed in August of 1872. The line followed Stewart's route and stuck close to the water sources Stewart had identified. Stewart's surveying work was praised by those involved with the project, a testament to his skill and dedication to his craft. The telegraph line crossed more than 2,000 miles of land, or 3,200 kilometers, and it changed communication dramatically in Australia. And it changed the continent in many other ways, which I'll mention in a minute. But before that, I want to talk about our series star, John McDougall Stewart. So, Stuart had come back to Adelaide as a hero, but also he was in terrible shape. He was never able to use his hand again, and he was practically blind. He suffered from near-constant pain. Stuart had suspected his sixth expedition would be his last, and it was very true. Sadly, things did not work out well for our explorer. Remember the 2,000 pounds that the government had promised to the man who crossed the continent? Well, they said that they weren't going to pay it, because they had already fronted Stuart two grand to cover the cost of his last expedition. After public pressure, they relented a bit. Instead of giving him the full 2,000 pounds, they awarded Stewart the interest from the investment of 2,000 pounds, which netted him about 160 pounds a year. Not exactly the windfall he had expected. But let's not forget that Stewart had a big lease of land near Chambers Creek. That had to be worth a lot, right? Well, no. The government said the lease would cost him 500 pounds, money he didn't have. He thus sold the rights to John Chambers for a mere 200 pounds. The truth is that no one was really in Stewart's corner anymore. James Chambers, his closest friend and supporter, had recently died, and Stewart's drinking embarrassed others to the point where they cut him out of their lives. Stewart considered going back to surveying, but his eyesight and health problems made that impossible. He tried giving lectures about his experiences, but his introverted nature, failing eyesight and drinking, made him ill-suited for such a thing. Stewart fueled his frustrations by drinking more, and he became bitter and grouchy and so, with his health failing and no prospects in Australia, Stuart elected to return to Great Britain in April of 1864. He lived with his sister Mary in Glasgow, Scotland. Stuart spent much of his time preparing his journals for publication. The result was Explorations in Australia, the Journals of John MacDougall Stuart. I want to mention that Stuart's journals are available for free online, and they are really quite good for the period. Much of this podcast is based on Stuart's writings. But I also want to stress that Stewart compiled his book several years after the actual events, so we should be a bit wary as he may have cleaned up some things that might have painted him in a less than stellar light. No matter they are a great resource. Anyhow, Stewart's health continued to deteriorate and his drinking increased, and on June 5, 1866, he died from a stroke in London. He was fifty years old. Only seven people went to his funeral, four relatives, two members of the Royal Geographical Society, and a South Australian farmer who was in London at the time. And that ends the life of John McDouall Stewart, one of the great explorers of the Australian interior. At this time, I want to talk about Stewart's legacy and add a few observations. First, we've talked about Stewart and Robert O'Hara Burke, and while they never met, their lives were intertwined, even in death. Burke, along with Wills, became a hero. His expedition was a glorious failure, something we all love to celebrate. History is filled with people who fail, yet are praised in death. Some of this is, I think, a way to justify their failure. Cloak it in glory or whatever, so there's some meaning to it. And this is what happened with Burke and the Victorian exploring expedition. They were brave and determined men. The public embraced the courage and daring and tragedy of Burke and his men and lionized them. Then you look at John McDewall Stewart, and you know what? For many people, he faded into history, especially outside of South Australia. Yet he was the explorer who actually succeeded he was the guy who had done what he had set out to do, and returned. No one on his expeditions died, ever. That is six expeditions, which is remarkable, considering seven people had died on Burke's one expedition. Part of this attitude is related to geography. Stuart was a hero in South Australia, the least populous of the Australian colonies. People in Victoria New South Wales and Queensland simply didn't take to the guy who wasn't their own. That's understandable. And then there was the fact that Stewart had just missed out on the easy-to-remember trophy and title. First person to cross Australia? Not John McDougall Stewart, but Birkin Wills. Stewart was the first guy to make the crossing, successfully return, and establish a route for the telegraph. That's great, but the title doesn't exactly roll off your tongue. Another interesting thing that affected Stewart was regarding the tree he had carved his name into on the North Coast. Remember that? He had done that right before setting out on his return journey. Well, when others initially came to the area, they could not find the tree Stewart described. This led some to question if Stewart had actually made the crossing. Was Stewart a fraud, people asked? The question lingered until the tree was discovered in the early 1880s, a photo taken with Stewart's initials clearly carved into it. This proved that Stewart's story was true, but the damage to his reputation was done. And speaking of reputation, Stewart's actions upon returning from the crossing of the continent, in particular his drinking, did not help his already shaky reputation. He repeatedly embarrassed himself and angered others in the process. And thus, some people thought it not ideal to hold up this raging alcoholic as a hero. They wanted a proper upstanding man put on a pedestal, not this antisocial weirdo with a severe drinking problem. Because of this, Stewart was, in many ways, pushed aside by some historians. Which is a shame, because in reality, Stuart did so many things the right way in order to accomplish his goals. I respect how he went further and further north, one step at a time, figuring out how to get the job done, and at the same time never forgetting his duty as a surveyor. He developed tactics and strategies to accomplish his goals, learning and adapting from previous experience. That's the sort of thing he want in a groundbreaking leader. I also love the respect he got when he was out in the field. His strict discipline was not for everyone, but in the end, it helped his team survive and succeed. His men, by the way, were devoted to him because of this. In fact, after Stuart's death, they gathered every year to celebrate their old boss, calling themselves Stuart's Companions. They'd get together and drink a bottle of malt whiskey and toast their old leader. The group would meet for decades. One photo of them that I saw online is dated from 1904, so more than 40 years after the last expedition. That is a wonderful testament to Stuart's leadership. The one thing that Stuart didn't do on his expedition was embrace communication. On his first journey, he brought along a young aboriginal man, but Stuart found his contributions lacking. Perhaps this soured him on employing other Aboriginal Australians on later expeditions. Or it might be that Stuart understood the Aboriginal people would avoid him, no matter who was with his party, and that there were many different tribes in the interior, and that just because you had an Aboriginal person in your ranks, it didn't mean that you would be greeted as a friend. Who knows the full truth? Another thing about Stuart that I admire, but has a downside, was the man's determination, fortitude, and zeal. No one worked harder. No one endured more. But because of this, he lost his eyesight and his health, and ultimately, his life. We praise individuals for enduring difficult, often deadly situations, but there are often costs that explorers pay, both mental and physical. We can't forget that. Oftentimes, men who are immensely robust and unstoppable in their younger years pay the price as they age. Men like Shackleton and Roosevelt and Stewart were almost a force of nature when out in the wild, but they fall apart, often dramatically, as they hit 40 or 50. Now, Stuart's accomplishments were a boon to South Africa and the entire continent. It's because of his work that the Telegraph became a reality just a decade later. But I also want to note that Stuart's journey would have a profound impact on the people who lived along this route. On the one hand, the establishment of the Telegraph helped spur the creation of many towns and cities, including Darwin on the North Coast but the telegraph line also sped up the encroachment of Europeans on the lands of the Aboriginal Australians, who are recognized for having one of the oldest continuous living cultures in the world. These people's lives were going to change very quickly and in many tragic ways. The installation of the telegraph line led to many confrontations between whites and Aboriginal peoples, including many, many deaths. This is something that went on for decades, and it almost always ended badly for the native Aboriginal people, whose technology was antiquated and in time were vastly outnumbered example as recently as 1932 an estimated 70 aboriginal australians were killed in retaliations for the murder of a white trapper this event is known as the constant massacre i will say that stuart for the most part tried to be fair in his dealings with the aboriginal australians he certainly wasn't a shoot first and ask questions later sort of guy was he perfect no several times stuart and his men fired on aboriginal peoples but stuart claimed it was always in self defense Whether anyone was killed in these encounters is not known, but at the very least, there were likely some injuries. Anyhow, I want to move on and talk about how Stuart is remembered today. I'll start by saying that his legacy primarily resides in South Australia and the Northern Territory of Australia. The Telegraph Route was an enormous legacy, but that eventually became obsolete. But in its place, you'll find the Stuart Highway, often just called the Track. This is a major highway that runs along the old Telegraph Route and goes from Darwin in the north to Port Augusta in the south. It's roughly 1,700 miles long, or 2,700 kilometers. How else is Stuart remembered? Well, there's a central Mount Stewart in the heart of the continent, and you'll find parks, schools, roads, and even a town named after Stuart. A statue of Stuart can be found in Adelaide, as well as in Alice Springs, which is in the Northern Territory. In the end, the thing I think we remember about Stuart was that he was this social misfit who found himself in the right place at the right time for a man of his skills, in most other places and times, Stewart is probably this oddball on the fringe of society. I mean, let's be honest, he was that at this time, but he was the oddball with the skill set needed to accomplish something really, really hard. And we cannot forget that when we talk about the accomplishments of Stewart, The man did something incredibly, incredibly difficult. Others had tried and failed. Burke had died, along with six others. Stewart had lost no one. That's remarkable. As I said early on, I have a soft spot for guys like John McDougall's Stewart the weirdos and oddballs in my book are far more interesting than the conventional types. Anyhow, that is it for John McDougall Stewart. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I had a great time learning about this man and his exploits. I want to wrap up with one comment about this series, and that is to give a huge thank you to Nicholas from the University of Newcastle, Australia, who helped out with pronunciations, plus provided a lot of amazing expertise about the Aboriginal nations, people, and culture. His contributions were invaluable. So thanks to Nicholas and everyone who helps out with the podcast. I appreciate it. And with that, I'll finish by saying thank you so much for being with us. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other podcasts that will pique your curiosity, including the Useless Information podcast and This Week in Travel.